Welcome to the fourth episode in our Global Business Crime Outlook podcast series. My name is Doug Davison, and I'm a partner in our Linklayer's Dispute Resolution Practice based in the U.S. I'm pleased to be joined today by three of my excellent partners in the dispute resolution practice. Ben Packer in the U.K., Kirsten Wilhelm in Germany, and Andrew Chung in Hong Kong. Money laundering is a key priority for many governments across the world. In today's discussion, we each will give a snapshot of the state of play in several jurisdictions. Let's start with Ben, who will talk about how COVID-19 has affected the types of predicate crimes committed and laundering techniques deployed by criminals globally. Ben? Thanks, Doug. So evidently for organizations to effectively guard against their products being used for money laundering, it's helpful for them to be aware of the latest trends in the types of crimes that are on the rise and the techniques deployed by criminals to launder their gains. Helpfully, the Financial Action Task Force, Interpol, and various national authorities put out some great materials on these topics. And as Doug says, I'm just gonna spend a few minutes picking out a few highlights from these. So first, the pandemic has clearly had some effect on the types of acquisitive crimes committed. Some types of crimes, such as muggings, have fallen due to national lockdowns and similar restrictions on movement, but there's been a sharp increase in other types of crime. And to pick out four in particular, first, there's been a rise in crime linked to medical goods. So unsurprisingly, criminals have exploited the increased demand for personal protective equipment, testing kits and hygiene products to sell fake goods, engage in trade-based money laundering, and engage in other types of scams. Second, conditions over the past year have been perfect for cyber scams. More people have spent more time online than ever before, and you've seen vulnerable people using, say, online banking for the first time. There's also research that suggests that the disorientation caused by crises make us more vulnerable to being scammed. And this has all resulted in an uptick in phishing attacks, email compromise attempts, and ransomware attacks. Third, investment fraud has also been on the rise. So many households have spent less during the pandemic, meaning they have more savings to invest. And with interest rates at record lows globally, criminals have exploited these conditions to offer fraudulent investments. Finally, corruption may well have increased too. As Transparency International say, crises like COVID provide a perfect storm for corruption. Large sums of money are required to deal with crisis and there's a need to distribute that urgently. This always gives risk to the rise that bad actors will exploit those circumstances for their own gain. So that's trends in predicate crimes, but what trends are we seeing in how criminals are laundering their gains? Well, first, crypto assets are becoming an increasingly popular way to launder funds. They allow value to be moved quickly across borders and outside the purview of a traditional banking system. Second, there's also been a rise in the use of money mules. So money mules are individuals who agree to move funds on behalf of criminal networks. That could take several different forms that could be collecting cash physically and depositing it into accounts, or it could just be accepting bank transfers into a personal account. And in each situation, then with instructions to transfer those sums onto others. Third, real estate as ever remains a popular asset class for launderers, especially with the opportunities to acquire property for lower prices given the distress caused by COVID. And finally, and probably most interestingly, video games have emerged as one of the key areas of risk for money laundering. Uh, as many apps and games now allow the transfer of value in platform, often with fewer checks than you get when conducting a bank, bank transfer. So that's a snapshot of global trends in predicate crimes. In terms of what's happened in the UK, I'd say the most interesting developments are probably not legislative as they are in some of your jurisdictions, but more in terms of the enforcement activity that's being pursued. So most notably, we've recently seen the Financial Conduct Authority here 
begin its first criminal prosecution against the bank for breaches of the money laundering regulations. And if you want to hear more about that, we explore that in detail on the first podcast in this series. That's not the FCA's only uh, financial crime investigation, not by some way. Uh, in their most recent figures, which will be nearly a year out of date now, the FCA has 71 open cases into financial crime issues. And it's not just in financial services where the regulators are active too. Increasingly, other authorities that supervise money laundering compliance are bearing their teeth. So back in January, we had Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs announce its biggest ever fine for breach of the money laundering regulations. We've also had various other authorities, such as the Gambling Commission, take more and more action against the bodies they supervise for failings in how they assess money laundering risk. So drawing it all together, given the desire of the UK government to get a consistently high standard of AML compliance across all sectors, I think what we can expect to see is even more enforcement activity in the coming years. And now I'll hand back to Doug, who will talk about the latest in the US. Thanks, Ben. Very interesting. I think we could say the same for enforcement over here. Uh, everything is continuing at a high level of activity, but the most significant development in AML really occurred at the beginning of the year. On January 1 of 2021, the US Congress passed a new anti-money laundering law. It's called the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020. It's noteworthy in that the new law was passed with overwhelming bipartisan support and it overrode a presidential veto. This is the first major update to the USAML laws in 20 years. And Congress tried to do a lot of things, including closing perceived AML loopholes, incentivizing and protecting whistleblowers, and enhancing tools to fight financial crime. And it will take a lot of resources. Estimates are that it will take a minimum of $74 million in fiscal year 2021 to satisfy what is contemplated. Let me mention three of the specifics, and I should note up front that I haven't uh, broken out another uh, little nodule for the penalties, but all the penalties have ratcheted up a notch or two. First, let me talk about the new law's imposition of the beneficial ownership reporting requirements. This is required on certain reporting companies in an effort to discourage use of shell corporations to disguise and move illicit funds, it creates a federal database of beneficial ownership. Very broadly speaking, a reporting company as defined in the law is to disclose certain identifying information on any beneficial owners to the federal government. Because the new law targets so-called shell companies, it excludes many categories of entities. A reporting company must report this information for each quote, beneficial owner, close quote, as that is defined in the law. As I'm sure you can imagine, there are a number of interpretive matters that will need to be fleshed out, including what some of these key terms actually mean. And of course, setting up the database is a massive undertaking that we expect to take some time to build and to get up and running. Let me turn to the second item, which is the new subpoena power over foreign bank records. Yes, the new law permits the U.S. Department of Justice and the Treasury to subpoena foreign bank records if the foreign bank maintains a U.S. correspondent account and to request, quote, any records relating to the correspondent account or any account at the foreign bank, close quote. That includes records maintained outside of the U.S. The new authority is authorized for any investigation of a violation of federal criminal law in any civil asset forfeiture proceeding 
and in any investigation under the AML laws and regulations. Quite broad. So what's new here? Well, the subpoena power is no longer limited to records related to the correspondent account. Rather, the subpoena can request records related to any account at the foreign bank, including, as I said, records outside the U.S. A non-U.S. bank can petition a district court to modify or quash a subpoena on specified grounds, but the new law specifically prohibits courts from quashing or modifying a subpoena solely on the ground that compliance would conflict with foreign bank secrecy or confidentiality laws. That's a big deal. Last, the new law significantly expands existing whistleblower provisions by incentivizing reporting. In particular, where a whistleblower voluntarily provides, quote, original information, close quote, that leads to an AML enforcement action brought by the Treasury Department or DOJ that results in a monetary sanctions of over a million dollars, the Treasury shall pay an award to a whistleblower of up to 30% of what is collected. Pretty significant in terms of incentivizing whistleblowers to come forward. This scheme was modeled after an existing process used by the SEC, which is now awarded over $800 million to 151 people since it was put in place in 2012. So we expect this is likely to have some results in the AML world. There's also new anti-retaliation provisions that protect the whistleblower from discharge, suspension, demotion, blacklisting, or harassment. So that's what I wanted to mention on the US. Let's now turn to some of the interesting developments in Germany, and I'll turn it over to my colleague, Kirsten. Thanks, Doug. Um, when it comes to money laundering, the most important development in Germany is the significant tightening of money laundering criminal law, which came into effect in mid-March this year. The background of this reform is the EU's sixth money laundering directive on combating money laundering by criminal law. And this directive triggered changes to section 261 of the German criminal code, which is the relevant criminal law provision on money laundering, mainly because certain predicate offenses for money laundering included in the directive were previously not covered by German law. In essence, the reform boils down to three major features. First of all, prior to the reform, criminal liability for money laundering could only be imposed in the case of certain serious predicate offenses, which were enumerated in a catalog and which were therefore unofficially referred to as catalog offenses. Offenses such as theft, embezzlement, fraud, breach of trust, and extortion have so far only been considered predicate offenses for money laundering if they were committed commercially or by gangs. And proving this was often difficult in law enforcement practice. Now, the legislator has abolished this catalogue and follows the so-called all crimes approach. This is a paradigm shift because in future, any criminal offence can be a predicate offence for money laundering. Hence, the legislator expects that the number of proceedings will at least double as an effect of the reform. Secondly, the legislator has also expanded the possibilities for confiscation of assets on the basis of suspicion of money laundering. According to the concept of so-called non-conviction-based confiscation, it is possible to confiscate assets if there is only a suspicion of a certain catalog offense and if the court is convinced that the assets originate from any offense which is usually not known in detail. 
Therefore, the new all crimes approach expands the possibilities for confiscation since suspicion of money laundering is now more likely to be affirmed. Finally, for certain selected predicate offenses committed abroad, the principle of double criminality, which means the necessity to establish criminal liability for that predicate offense in Germany and additionally the relevant foreign jurisdiction, will no longer apply directly in all cases. This amendment concerns particular predicate offenses for money laundering, for example, certain cases of corruption, including in the private sector and offenses related to terrorism. For these offences, it is now sufficient that the relevant EU regulations oblige the respective member state to provide for a corresponding criminal liability, regardless of whether implementation has actually already taken place. And that's the update I wanted to provide on Germany, and I'll now like to pass over to Andrew to provide a few highlights from Asia. Kirsten. On the Asia side, I want to touch briefly on AML developments in Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, and mainland China. Starting with Hong Kong, as many of you know, Hong Kong has a patchwork of different ordinances and guidelines governing AML-related matters, with multiple authorities responsible for different laws and sectors. While AML matters remain an enforcement priority for both criminal and financial regulatory authorities, the most significant recent development is the publication in late 2020 by the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission of a consultation paper with potential updates to its AML guidelines. I'd say that the proposed changes are incremental rather than fundamental, with refinements to a number of aspects relating to due diligence and the identification of red flags. Based on past experience, we expect the outcome of that consultation to be released in the first half of this year, and we'll be keeping our clients posted when that consultation is published. In Singapore, an amendment to the Payment Services Act was passed in January this year. The Payment Services Act regulates new payment methods made possible due to advances in fintech, and the amendment extends the scope of the Payment Services Act and its AML provisions to service providers of digital payment tokens which facilitate the use of digital payment tokens for payments, even if those service providers don't possess the monies or the payment tokens involved. In Japan, the Japanese FSA has issued new AML guidelines, which became effective this February. Uh, the guidelines focus on enhanced controls and ongoing monitoring, not just for tier one banks, but also now extend to smaller financial institutions, as well as regional banks and cash deposit institutions. Somewhat surprisingly, the guidelines felt it necessary to make clear that it's the responsibility of senior management to oversee the implementation of these guidelines. And finally, and perhaps the most uh, interesting development uh, is in mainland China. Just on a few weeks ago, on the 15th of April, the People's Bank of China issued new AML rules for financial institutions. These come into effect on the 1st of August, 2021. The new rules repeal the earlier 2014 rules and will heighten the AML risk management and internal control requirements on financial institutions. Uh, importantly, the new rules also extend beyond the traditional banks and securities brokerages and now include online microfinance companies, loan companies, as well as asset management companies. With that, I'll pass back to Doug. Andrew, thank you so much. Uh, I thank you to all of our listeners and the rest of our speakers. If you're interested in finding out more, you'll find lots of helpful resources 
on our business crime and investigations webpage on Linklaters. We are continuing to add to our podcast series every month, touching on recent developments and new areas of interest. We're also hosting monthly webinar sessions on different business crime topics. So please do look out for those email invitations. And finally, if you'd like to get in touch with one of us, uh, please do reach out to anyone. Thank you so much. Thank you.